Good morning. This morning we will be in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to read verses 1 to 15. If you don't have a Bible with you, the blue Bible in the pew in front of you, it should be on page 617. Should be. I say that in italics. You just can't see it. We are continuing our series through Ecclesiastes, making sense of this mysterious life. Um, The last couple weeks, Pastor Dan has walked us through this book and been exploring with the preacher of Ecclesiastes, where is satisfaction? What is meaning? This morning, we'll talk about where is purpose. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek, and a time to lose, a time to keep, and a time to cast away, a time to tear, and a time to sow, a time to keep silence, and a time to speak, a time to love, and a time to hate, a time for war, and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to do than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. In a recent article, I read about an art project, a very interesting art project, not the most beautiful, it's just gray concrete, so I don't know if I'd call it art, some people might, an art project that is underway in a town in Germany. Now, this is not a recently commissioned art project. It's actually in year 40. Now, some of us are like, whoa, 40 years? That's actually not too crazy if you think throughout art history. But the schedule for this art project is, is a little crazy. It will be finished, or supposed to be, projected to be, 
in the year 3183. So we're in year 40. We're not moving at a real fast pace. It's a project that will defy time, over, going over all of time, if you will, for these next few thousand or a thousand plus some years, over generations. And in this article, what I found was not just this art project, but there's a lot of what you might call long-term art projects. There's a poem being etched one letter at a time in Utrecht, a town in the Netherlands. There's an artificial stalactite that was designed by an artist that will drip water for 500 years. And there is a clock. We don't want to leave it to the Europeans, okay? America has to get its, its foot in the door here. There's a clock in Texas that will keep time for 10,000 years. Always bigger in Texas, isn't it? What do all these projects tell us? They tell us that no matter where you are or when you live, as humans, we wrestle with, and, and these projects show that we combat what we perceive to be our total tyrant, time. Maybe you haven't invested your life all of your savings into developing some kind of millennia surviving defiance to time, but you feel the constraints to time as well, don't you? You said the phrase, this year has flown by. Can you believe it's already October? No, it's not October. We have another week left, right? Or you tell the child that just wants to grow up, honey, enjoy your time while you can. All of these reveal a trouble that we have with time. Last week in Ecclesiastes, the preacher exposed a misconception common to all of us. We all look to satisfaction or happiness in the things in this world. But as we saw, it will only leave us wanting. Now this week, he is going to confront us with another misconception, another misguided perception, if you will, of this life. Many of us, or all of us maybe, consider time to be a tyrant. We think that time is reigning and ruling over us, and it causes us to stress or have anxiety. We don't have enough of it, or we need to make the best of it. We need to figure out how to control this thing that is over us that we think controls us. We are troubled by time. But the preacher is going to show us that our trouble with time is not in fact that we live in time. We're going to see, yes, we are constrained by it. But our trouble with time is that we don't rightly understand it. We don't rightly understand time. What the preacher shows us and what we see in this text is that time is under the perfect good control of God. It is not a tyrant reigning as it pleases. It is a tool used under the reign of God. The seasons have a composer. The orchestra has an, a conductor. It is God. And so we begin to understand this truth. As we begin to understand this truth, we're going to have three takeaways that I hope we leave with this morning. First, as we understand that God is the composer of the symphony that we live in, the seasons. First, we will relish the works of God through time. Second, may we rejoice in the gifts of God in our time. And then third, that we would revere the rule of God over time. Now to see this, what we're going to do is we're going to break the passage into three sections. I know, lots of threes, lots of breaks. 
This is how we're going to walk through the passage. The trouble with time. First, we're going to look at the troubling tick-tock of time. Then we're going to look at the true determiner of time. And last, what to do with our time, or our tasks during our time. You can tell I didn't pick which one I wanted. Our tasks during our time. First, let's look at the troubling tick-tock of time. So this passage starts with this poem, a very famous poem. I was reminded a few times this morning about a song that's not necessarily current, but well-known among many of us by the birds, Turn, turn, turn. Even if you haven't heard that song, which actually I did listen to this week and tried to convince Pastor Dan to let us use it, but it was shot down. Regardless, if you haven't heard that song, you've likely heard this poem read at funerals, or maybe you've heard the phrase, a season for everything. You've heard song titles, song lyrics, TV quotes referring to this famous poem. And what a comforting idea, right? There's a season for everything, implying this too shall pass. Isn't that how we always look at this poem? This is a temporary season. You just have to get through this season, and everything will be okay. But if we consider what the preacher, first of all, his tone so far through the letter, or through the book, but also if we consider what he's saying in this poem, we may reevaluate some of the positives that we draw from it. When we consider what the preacher is saying, I think we will see that the poem by itself is actually somewhat unsettling. Now, we're going to walk through it. We're not going to go line by line, but I just want to look at a few traits of this poem that will help us understand its point and feel the unsettledness of it. So starting in verse 1, we get the thesis statement of the poem. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. And then this poem is going to explain that. He starts in verse 2. A time to be born and a time to die. Now notice what he does with these pairs. He's choosing opposites, right? The start of life, the end of life. Both ends of one spectrum. In doing this, he's using a technique to pick two different things at two ends of the spectrum to say everything in that spectrum is true of this as well. There's a time to be born and a time to die and a time for everything between those two points. He's trying to describe all of life in as few of words as possible, a very uncommon trait for a preacher. And he does this with all 14 lines. Not only does he show every line as a spectrum, but then he says birth and death first, like an arch, an umbrella, and all those lines under it describe things that happen between birth and death. All the following lines are intended to describe events that happen between our birth and our death. Between life and death or birth and death, you will plant and you will harvest. You will mourn and you will dance. You will break down and you will heal. You will seek and you will lose, and so on and so on. His point is that every event, birth, death, and everything in the middle, is a season that comes and goes. We are constrained by time. It will not last forever. Another season awaits. 
Okay? I think we get that naturally when we read it. One more note. The preacher's also emphasizing that all of life is under this constraint. Notice what he repeats. When you read this poem, what does he say over and over and over again? Time, time, time. There is a rhythm to it. It's almost like he's breathing as he is writing this. It is to show you that all of life is repeated and and there is constancy through it. There are seasons that are coming and going, and he uses the word time 28 times, twice in every 14 pairs. Meaning, as a derivative of as seven coming from that, it signifies that this poem is complete. It talks about all of life, and all of your life will be filled with these things. So we see in this poem why time can feel like a tyrant right? It starts, it ends, there's a season for everything in the middle, and it just keeps going. It just keeps coming. We feel like time is a tyrant because looking at the poem, it is. We are constrained by it. And not only are we constrained by time, we see that the seasons just come and go, and we're not in control of them, are we? Think about the first one, birth and death. You don't pick when you're born, and naturally you do not pick when you die. Birth and death, weeping and laughing, mourning and dancing, love and hate, war and peace. These aren't seasons that we choose. We do not affect them, they affect us. We don't choose when to grieve. We don't choose when the death of our loved one comes. It comes and we follow it with grief. We don't choose when to dance and we don't get to choose when we stop to dance. The season leaves without us telling it to do so. No matter what we think, we are not the masters of our souls. We are not the captain, captains of our ship. In an age of unmatched individuality, We need to read this poem to sober us, friends. We need to be reminded we are finite creatures. We are receivers and we are not determiners, no matter what the poets say. Rather than captains of our ship, this poem makes us feel more like sailors that are stuck in a raft at sea, going as the current and tide directs them. It shows us and it reminds us that the seasons change and they don't ask us for our opinion. And while the poem ends saying that there is time for peace, it doesn't really leave us with peace, does it? If we think about it in this way. We leave this poem unsettled. Well, if there's just seasons moving, is anybody in control? Is time in control? Is there purpose if these seasons are just going to go as they want to go? And these are the questions that the preacher wants us to ask. We know that because following this poem, he explains to us how we can understand it, how we can understand this life under the sun. He doesn't want us to be like the passive world and just say, all right, the seasons are going to go, so we're going to go with the flow. No, he wants us to ask 
if all of life has a specific time, who set it? And if all of life has a specific time, what is the point? Well, let's consider these questions. First, let's look at the true determiner of time. Immediately in verse 1, he gives us a little tip. He says, for everything, there is a season. Now, this is an unfortunate translation decision. The word there for season literally means an appointed time. It's used in Esther 9.31. We read that these days of Purim should be observed at their appointed seasons. The same word. Ezra 10.14. Let our officials stand for the whole assembly. Let in all our cities who have taken foreign wives come at appointed times. Same word. Again, Nehemiah 13.31. And I provided the wood offering at appointed times. So throughout the Bible, there's more examples. Throughout the Bible, this word is not just seasons in a nebulous sense. This is an appointed, specific, determined moment. Everything has a fixed, determined moment. Every matter has a specific time. What this does is it changes it from a fatalistic understanding of what will be will be to that there's a purpose. There's intentionality. There's appointment. There's a purpose and meaning to these changes. They don't just come and go as they please. They come and go as they're told to. And they're told to by God. Look at verse 10. I have seen the business. Another word for that would be tasks. I have seen the tasks that God has given to the children of man to be busy with or to be occupied with. Now look back at the poem. What are the things that the preacher is describing? Many of the lines are tasks. I have seen the tasks that God has given to you, namely verses 2 to 8. I have seen these things. God has given them. Those tasks were appointed times and tasks given to you by God. And then continuing in verse 11, he says, God, or he, has made everything beautiful in its time. Here the word everything should again make us go back to verse 1. For everything, there is an appointed time. For every matter, there is a time. God has made those everythings in their time, and he's done it beautifully. He's done it with perfection. He's done it with visual, pleasing materials. He has appointed these things perfectly. God has appointed and determined all of the seasons and times in all of history, including your life in the seasons that you face. This is why in Daniel 2.21, God speaks, declare, or Daniel speaks, declaring about God. He says, he changes times and seasons. Not the leave colors. He goes on. He removes kings and he sets up kings. The times and seasons of our lives, God changes. David declares in Psalm 31, but I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. He is trusting that his situation, 
that his season of life, that the troubles he faces, that the joys he receives are in the hand of God. Matthew Henry helpfully writes, those things which to us seem most casual and contingent are in the counsel and foreknowledge of God, here's the best phrase, punctually determined. In the very hour of them is fixed and can neither be anticipated nor adjourned a moment. They are punctually determined. This is one of the greatest comforts we time-bound creatures can have. Those who read that poem and realize we are constrained by time, we can also say all of those times are punctually determined by a good God who makes them beautiful according to his will. We are like a, 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 a symphony looking at the conductor, waiting for him to give us our cue, to cut us off, to start this piece, right? That is what the seasons and times are. That is what we are doing in this life. We are looking to the conductor who punctually determines when they stop and when they start. Now, this truth does not settle well with some. Naturally, it, it doesn't settle well with us at all. One of the 16th century reformers wrote, there is nothing of which is more difficult to convince men than that the providence of God governs the world. We don't like this idea. But our distaste is nothing new. Actually, it's probably the oldest point of dissension. In the garden, was it not Adam and Eve's downfall? Is the fall not their denying God's sovereign governance? The fall was the refusal to admit that God is the one who determines what is right and wrong and the right thing to do now and the wrong thing to do now. Instead, they believed the lie of autonomy, saying, no, we're going to determine these things. And now we're stuck in this. We think we can determine these things, and we forget that it's God who sets them. But what this passage does is it exposes that foolishness. First, by making it abundantly clear that we are finite and constrained in time. We saw that in the poem. But it also shows us that God is the true determiner of all the seasons and times. One author helpfully explains all of life, and I would say, let's zoom out and say all of history as a tapestry, okay? So tapestry, those beautiful pictures that are woven together, the textile arts, they tell a story, they, they tell you something, maybe it happened in the past, or it's a, a family tree, what have you. They're beautiful, exquisite, exquisite pieces of art. And when we look at a tapestry, from the back side of it, it's not so beautiful, is it? A bunch of knots, a bunch of weavings that don't really make any sense. It's kind of a photo-negative picture, but it's really not. It's a confusing picture. But when we look at it from the other side of things, we see the beauty of the tapestry. We see the beauty of every single little thread, even the black ones. We see the beauty as it's woven together. We see that the tapestry is a work of art. And when we think about all of history that way, we see that God has been working a tapestry 
He has made a beautiful working and appointing of times in this tapestry. And he's done it with a purpose. There's a center point on this tapestry. And that center point is a specific moment that was appointed in all of time. The New Testament tells us when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. This tapestry from the left side working to the middle is working to this perfect point when Jesus is going to be born to die to redeem his people. And at the right appointed time, Christ died. His birth was not the result of a whim. It was woven into this tapestry leading to that point. His death was a constant looking for the hour to come. And it was at the appointed time that he died. And his return is a time that is already known and determined by the Father. You see what God is doing. He has already made this gorgeous tapestry. And it has this center point and this glorious ending. And you, friend, are woven into it. All of your seasons and all of your times are woven into this tapestry. While our sin was the denial of God's governance, the gospel is the perfect, beautiful display of God's sovereign governance over the worst appointed time, Christ's death, and the best appointed time, our redemption accomplished through his death. It was always working through God's perfect, sovereign governance. This is truly one of the greatest comforts we can have in our day-to-day as well, friends. What this means is that you're not a victim of, your, of the time. You're not a victim of the time. Your pain is not arbitrary. Your suffering is not unseen. Your joy is not found, but it's given to you. And your life was given to you. And your death is not going to be an accident. It is planned. Christian, there is no job loss that the Lord is not aware of and planned for. There is no difficult home situation that God is not aware of and over. There is no cancer that surprises him. There isn't a wedding he didn't ordain, a birth he did not determine, and a death he does not expect. Mourning, weeping, laughing, and dancing are all divine appointments. They are gifts from God, and they are planned in his goodness to display his beautiful works. Even the things that we think men control, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace, we think those are in the hands of men, right? Even those are in the hands of God. Why did God, why did David not kill Saul? 1 Samuel 24 and verse 6, David says to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. God controls even when man makes his decision. As we look at life, we can become confused and unsettled, and we can quickly feel helpless. But Christian... God has appointed your time, and he has appointed your seasons. He is over them. He is the great and mighty creator who has decreed this will start and this will end. 
And he knows your times personally as well. And all that he makes is beautiful. It is marvelous. It arrays his glory. This tapestry is going to show the lives of the saints as they were leading up to the point of Christ and coming from the glorious moment of his resurrection. Every dark season in this tapestry, every dark thread is just surrounding a picture of God's grace and his goodness. The times when he was upholding you in hard times. The times when his spirit was standing beside you and encouraging you. The times when your suffering was for your good and for the good of the saints. Every dark thread has a purpose in this tapestry. And that is to reveal his goodness and his beauty. So Christian, your first takeaway is to relish the work of God through time. Relish the work of God through time. This means that we are to enjoy, savor, and be satisfied knowing that God has been, has been, and continues to work throughout history to make all things beautiful in their time. We can enjoy his timing. This means we look at the dark days of death in the days of sorrow, in the moments of pain, and we know that he is working through them. Even those days are for our good. It's not because we deny the pain. That's not what any of this is saying. We don't deny that it hurts. We don't deny that this is a hard season. But we know that it's not in control. We know that God has appointed it, and he appoints all things for the good of those who love him. We find comfort that there is punctuality set by him in every one of these seasons. And we know that he will never let it go any longer than it ought to. And it has a glorious ending waiting ahead. God is a true determinant of our times, friends, and we can take great comfort in that truth. And so, we see that the times can be troubling, but God controls them. So then our next question, well, what do we do in them, right? God's overtime, okay, that's glorious and comforting. But what do I do today and tomorrow and in the days to come? Well, let's look at, back at the text and we'll consider our tasks during our time. <clears throat> in verses 10 through 15, the preacher tells us what he sees and then he makes a couple of conclusions. So we've already seen first part of what he sees, right? He sees that God has made everything beautiful in its time, that God has given us our tasks to be busy with, to be occupied with. We had just explored that. But then he sees something else. Verse 11, <clears throat> the second half. He sees that God has put eternity into man's heart, yet man cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. What he means is that man has an inkling. We have a yearning, perhaps, to know what God has done and to know why God has done it. How many of you have encountered the doomsday specialist? Right? They have their charts. Maybe they have some symbols that are loosely tied to some biblical material. They are trying to predict when that season will come. And they're very sure about when it will come. And maybe you're not that person, but you certainly want to know what next year holds, don't you? You certainly want to know what the next season of life holds. 
You certainly want to know when this will end. You want to know why I'm going through this. You want to know God and his reasoning for doing and appointing the times that you face. But the problem is, is that we cannot. We read in Isaiah 40 earlier, no one gives God his counsel. No one tells God how to understand things. He is God. Friends, we cannot predict God's timing. But we can do what he has called us to in his timing. Instead of spinning our wheels trying to figure these things out, we are given two tasks in this text that help us to see what we are to do. First, we are to rejoice in the gifts of God in our time. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. The last week, as I said earlier, Pastor Dan showed us that we cannot find any satisfaction in our pursuit of gain from the world. Instead, we saw that satisfaction comes not from what we can seize, but what we receive from God. Satisfaction is not found in what you think you can pursue and seize in this life because it will slip through your fingers. Satisfaction is found in the contentment of receiving the goodness of what God gives you in this life and what he, will, what he holds for you in the life to come. The conclusion is the same in our pursuit of purpose, of what do we do? The conclusion is the same. As we are in uncontrollable, changing seasons, it's not what purpose we can assign to them that we do, but it's the enjoyment of the times and seasons that we receive. It is rejoicing in the gifts of God in our time. And notice in the instruction the simplicity of what we are to do. Very simple, friends. Be joyful. Do good. Eat, drink, and enjoy our work. Very simple. How complex we make our pursuits of purpose. We think we must change the world. We think we have to leave an impact. We think we have to be seen, and we have to really be seen and known by others to have a purposeful life. Our voice must be heard to have a purpose. We must be up front to have a purpose. Friends, those are lies. Purpose is not found in popularity. Purpose is found in the precious gifts of what, gives, what God gives you each day. So in his play, Our Town, Thornton Wilder, he writes a simple play about simple people living simple lives. I love this play. I was talking with Pastor Dan about it this week. I strongly recommend that you read it and or see it. But at the end of it, it has this very famous quote. At the, at the end of it, that one character, after she has seen, she's gone back in time, and she sees her 12th birthday, and she's trying to talk to her mother, and her mother won't really look at her. She's just talking and doing dishes and doing her thing, and she's just screaming at her mom, look at me! She sees that we only find significance in monumental moments and not the simple things of life. And so she asks the narrator at the end, 
Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? Do any human beings ever realize life while they live it? And the narrator responds, no. Well, the saints and the poets, maybe. They do some. The saints and the poets. The saints and the poets. The saints do, friends, because in this text it shows us we can really realize life because life is wrapped up in enjoying what we receive from God. How telling this is. We live in a world and we live with a predisposition to define significance and purpose by anything but what is simple. And our text this morning is calling us back. Realize life. Purpose is not found in preaching the perfect sermon, pastor. It's not found in making the most money. It's not found in having the perfect house. It's not found in being the perfect parent. It is found in the simple everyday gifts from God and in rejoicing in those gifts. So friends, what gifts do you see as insignificant? They're from God. We need to make, as one author titled a book, every moment holy. Every moment is holy. From doing laundry and changing diapers, to writing sermons and doing budget sheets, from accounting and cutting lawns, from being a retiree and serving your neighbors, from fixing wheelchairs, whatever it is that you do, it is from the hand of God. He gives you your toil. Every moment is holy because he has appointed it for you. So we rejoice in the gifts of God. And lastly, we revere the reign of God over time. Revere the reign of God over time. We cannot understand God's working from the beginning to the end. That's what he said back in verse 11, right? Eternity's in our heart, but we can't understand what God has done from the beginning to the end. We can't understand why the seasons change. We can't understand how or why God appoints certain seasons, but we can understand the purpose of his doing these things. We can understand the end goal in these things. Look at verse 14. We'll read 14 and 15. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. So the beginning of 14 and the end of 15 is just two ways to say the same thing. He's trying to say that what God does stands forever. It's unchanging and it's unchangeable. Hence why we can't understand it from the beginning to the end. He's already said it. It is unchanging and unchangeable. And so in the middle, we see the reason why. We see the end goal. God has done it so that people fear before him. God's mighty working and appointing of all things has one end in mind. It has one goal, to elicit in our hearts a fear of the Lord. A fear of the Lord. 
The idea of the fear of God or the fear of the Lord is a huge topic. Lots of books have been written on it. I strongly recommend a few. I would give you those recommendations after service. But we live in a world where the idea of fear has been twisted. It has been changed. Especially when we think of fear of someone in power. Think about politics. Scare tactics. Think about social justice movements. Lots of scare tactics. The use of the word fear is everywhere throughout these different spheres. And so it makes us think, well, fear of the Lord must mean there's this conniving God who's manipulating his subjects to bend the knee. That is not the fear of the Lord. It is not oppressive or abusive. It is joyful. It is relationship. Jeremiah 32, what's the point of the new covenant? That he will put fear of him in your hearts. It is what unites you to him. Pastor Dan preached a sermon on the fear of the Lord in our first Peter series last earlier this year. I encourage you to go back and listen to it. But in that sermon, he cited Ian Murray. He had it on the slide, and I should have followed his practice, but I'm going to read it to you with emphasis so you'll know all the important parts. Ian Murray describes the fear of the Lord. He says, The fear of God in which godliness consists is the fear which constrains adoration and love. It compels adoration and love. It forces... it. Nothing else but adoration and love can come from this fear. It is the fear which consists in awe, reverence, honor, and worship. And all of these to the highest level of exercise. And here's the point. It is the reflex in our consciousness of the transcendent majesty and holiness of God. It is the, the reflex just like whenever the doctor hits your knee with that really weird-looking hammer. I don't understand why it looks like a duckbill or a, a chicken beak, but it does. That little hammer in your knee kicks out. You have a reflex. When we understand the transcendent, the great, the glorious, the high, the mighty, the unreachable majesty and holiness of God and his love for us, we can't do anything but respond and reflex with awe and glory and honor and worship of him. The fear of the Lord for the Christian is not a dreaded fear with weeping and uncertainty. It is a solid fear, solidly standing upon an understanding of who God is. It is a fear that stands upon the truth in this passage. A fear that knows that God is the great, mighty appointer of times, and he knows your times, friend. And he set your time. That can do nothing but elicit a fear of the Lord. That he set this season I'm in. And he has set all of the seasons in all of history. It is a fear that knows that God is sovereign over time. And yet he entered into time to redeem those who have refused his sovereign good government. It is a fear that knows that God works, all of his works endure forever. Unmoved and unchanging. And yet he gives you the toil for you to do that your grandchildren won't remember. 
He's that big and mighty, and yet He cares for us, the lowly. It is a fear that knows God as the God of glory, the one who the earth reflects His glory, the one who angels and stars sing to, and knows God as the one who has forgiven, blessed, and loves us as Father. That is what it means to fear the Lord, to understand these truths side by side. It elicits a love and adoration for him. I think that C.S. Lewis describes it best, what the experience is like best, in his book, Prince Caspian. When the children see Aslan for the first time in this journey, they have a fear of Aslan. So they've been in darkness. They've been trying to get their way to Prince Caspian, who's like, he's under siege, he's not doing well. And they've been in all this darkness. They've been using their own wits. And what happened is they walked right into the enemy. But then they see this shadow, or Lucy does, and then she starts to convince the other ones, no, no, that is Aslan. And they follow it. Elusively, he leads them out. And then he reveals his glory to them. And what Lewis writes is he says, the children, when they saw his glory, the children were as glad as anyone who can feel afraid and as afraid as anyone who can feel glad. That is what it means to fear God. To be so glad to know that he loves you. He's appointed your season and in such awe that he has appointed all the seasons and he is not under the tyrant of time, but he set the clock. That is what it means to fear God. It is a trembling joy, a glad fear, a rejoicing reverence, or a sober savoring of our Savior. Friends, the goal, the end goal of all of our times, when we want purpose, relish the works of God. Relish them. Look at the beautiful work of God and think about the tapestry he's made. Rejoice in the gifts of God. Don't overlook the simple, but receive what he has given to you. And then revere the reign of God over time. Have fear of the Lord that trembles at the thought of who he is and cries joyful, joyful at the idea that we get to call him Father. That is what the preacher has for us this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that your word exposes to us places where we look to ourselves or look to the world, places where we just don't look to you, places where stresses and anxieties can come in because we only think in the small parts of your tapestry. And so, Father, we ask that you'd help us to back up, look at it from your side, and to back up and see all of it. Would you help us to enjoy, to, reve- to relish the goodness of your works in all of our seasons, knowing that our good God, who we call Father, has appointed them for us and is with us through them. Would you help us to rejoice in the toil that you've given to us, no matter how meaningless the world says it is, would you help us to remember it's a gift from you to enjoy. 
And Father, would you help us to grow in our fear of you so that we can enjoy you and worship you as you have made us to do so. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.